That is very sweet. I feel a little nine, selfish three, reading that, but two, thank eight. you to whoever 8396-8675309 oh, yeah. is. I love that one. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by why clouds don't freeze. Oh, wow. That's deep. So this is a this is a, an issue I've been made fun of a lot for, but okay. I'm just going to confess it now. Okay. If you think about if like if you're on a plane and you, you look at that little screen that tells you the temperature outside, mm-hmm. it's well, well below zero, even if you're flying in summer. Water freezes at zero Celsius, right, or Mm -hmm. 32 Fahrenheit. So, therefore, Mm. clouds should freeze. And, therefore, I believe that pilots, when they're flying, what they have to do is they have to fly really fast when they go through the clouds to break through that layer of ice. Most people don't Mm -hmm. realize this, but I'm pretty sure that's what happens. Wow. I've never thought about that, but this is something where I think Chris would have the answer. He, he, he might, but I asked, think he would now. You've asked him already. No, I've asked know. a bunch of people okay. who know things about wow. planes and Physics who know things about or, uh, meteorology. And I haven't gotten a good explanation. There is one, of course there is. I'm, I'm kidding, by the way. I don't really believe that's what happens. But it always, has always made me curious. Why do clouds not freeze if the temperature is so cold? I don't know the yeah. answer. I don't know either, but I one of our listeners answer, can tell us. So. Yeah. I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am joined this week. We have only two of us. Chris is away, and so I'm here with Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess. Thanks, Matt. Nice to be here. And as a reminder, if you could head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, you can find lots of population health learning programs and tools. And also, if you can give us a rating on your favorite podcast app, iTunes or Stitcher, and we have we have a new review. So uh, this one's a little self-indulgent because I get referenced in this one. But it says, this is from... Well, it's just a number, 9284839, bunch of numbers via Apple Podcast. It says, favorite epi podcast. I love listening to this podcast. I'm an MPH epi bio student at the BU School of Public Health, and this podcast keeps me abreast with the subject. The podcast is not only informative, but also funny with Professor Mad Fox. So, <laughs> that, you know, I'm, oh, I'm, that is very sweet. I feel a little Nine, selfish three, in reading that, but two, thank eight. you to who, whoever 8396-8675309 oh, yeah. is. Love that one. All right, so now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study on pesticide residue on fruit and vegetable and risk of glioma. In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about the rise of the preprint. And in our Amazing and Amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or we just were fascinated by. So let's jump in. So segment one, we're going to talk about an article that looked at the impact of pesticide residue on risk of glioma published in the American Journal of Epidemiology. Full disclosure, I am on the editorial board of AJE. And the study was entitled Pesticide Residue Intake from Fruit and Vegetable Consumption and Risk of Glioma by first author David Cote of the Department of Epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health right here in Boston, Massachusetts. I just want to say I'd like titles that are short and sweet like this that don't Mm -hmm. you know i mean there is something nice about getting the study design and the result and everything in the in the headline i I don't know i'm I'm a fan of just a nice concise headline title this was this was a a nice head a nice title yeah i agree so no again like with our last episode no headlines on this one this was one we were interested in so jess can you talk us through this study 
Sure. I feel like we're continuing down our fruit and veggie we are. path from last time. We um, are. I feel like I should be eating a banana. <laughs> right now. I know. This is, So this is a very interesting article. So just by means of background, gliomas are a rare but highly devastating type of brain cancer. And the causes of glioma are largely unknown, but are suspected to at least be part environmental, kind of related to some sort of environmental exposure. And occupational studies over the course of many years have demonstrated elevated incidence of glioma among farm workers, specifically pesticide applicators, and likewise high levels of pesticide exposures among this workforce has been associated with glioma in a number of studies. And there's also a solid basis of toxicological animal-based data suggesting that pesticides have an association with this sort of cancer. However, studies of dietary exposure to pesticides have, have demonstrated either no or either, either a null association or a much weaker association with glioma over time. So this study is trying to add some nuance to this understanding where we have oftentimes, so I'm in the environmental health side of epidemiology, and often you will there will be studies in the occupational health literature that will be focused on high levels of exposure among a very narrowly defined and specific group of workers being associated with a particular health outcome. And then those sort of findings drive a deeper dive into exposures among the general population. And so that's what this study is doing, is they're kind of taking that step from some evidence from the occupational and toxicological literature, and then looking to see if dietary pesticide exposure with a finely tuned assessment of pesticide level by type of fruit and produce and veggie is associated with glioma, with this particularly devastating but rare type of brain cancer. So these authors come from the Nurses Health Study Juggernaut. Is that the term? They, I, they, okay. I, I think that's a fair so, the, term. Okay, so so this, this study takes place within the Nurses Health Study, which is actually a number of kind of interwoven cohort studies. And they are looking at the relationship between questionnaire-based fruit and vegetable consumption in conjunction with data on pesticide residues that are identified on those specific types of produce as established by the USDA Pesticide Data Program to consider the risk of glioma in association with fruit and vegetable intake. So their core hypothesis at the outset is that high consumption of pesticides on produce, so kind of elevated consumption of produce that had higher levels of pesticide residue on the basis of these USDA assessments, would be positively associated with glioma risk, but that low levels would be protective of glioma under the more general assumption that fruit and veggies might reduce your cancer risk. And so this was kind of an interesting kind of dual hypothesis at the, at the outset. So there were, at the outset, about 200,000 nurses and healthcare professionals enrolled prospectively in the three cohorts that made up kind of core population for these studies. The original Nurses Health study, the first Nurses Health 1, started in 1976. Then there was a follow-up cohort that started recruiting nurses, trying to get in part a more diverse population in 1989. And then in 1986, there was the health professionals segment of the Nurses Health study that started focusing also also on recruitment of men and on people, not just nurses, but other sorts of health professionals. So there are hundreds of thousands of people in this nurse's health, jog juggernaut. 
that's being drawn from this study. These participants completed dietary assessments every four years using what they call it, the FFQ, the 131 question food frequency questionnaire, which is highly validated and used to my understanding kind of widely across mm -hmm. the nutritional epidemiologic yep. literature. It has 30 produce items that they ask about and response can be, I, I never eat this, to I eat this six or more times per day. And so people could respond to all of these different produce types and, and look at their frequency of consumption. And they aligned consumption patterns with pesticide levels as identified during the time period. So the USDA sporadically updates their pesticide data, their residue dictionary. Mm -hmm. And so what they tried to do here was to align the consumption patterns to the same data on residues on a strawberry, for example, at around the same time or as close as they could get to when that person completed that dietary questionnaire. Under the assumption, they made the point, which I thought was fascinating, that apples and oranges were the only pesticides where there was not tremendous variation in the pesticide residue over the study years. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was an important component of what they did too. They considered other factors in their models as risk factors for glioma, including BMI, physical activity, alcohol, other metrics of healthy eating. And gliomas were self-reported on questionnaire and then also physician confirmed and deaths were confirmed through assessments through the National Death index. So this is a longitudinal study. They were looking at incident glioma from the start of the study and produce intake from the start of each study until the end of follow-up, which ran from 2013 to 2016, depending on the cohort the participant was in. And the analyses were the cumulative average of intake across all of this data. And they use Cox proportional hazard models to estimate the adjusted hazard ratio of glioma by quintile of pesticide intake, specifically looking at the highest and the lowest quintile. So what did they find? They had across 2.8 million person years, which is why you got to love the nurse's health study, <laughs> 275 incident gliomas reported in that person year package. And again, that really reflects how rare this outcome can be within the first and, they, and their results varied by cohort which was interesting. They had these three distinct cohorts. In the first cohort, so these were the nurses. They were almost entirely white women. They were recruited in the late 70s. They observed a strong association between the intake of the highest pesticide produce and risk of glioma with their hazard ratio approximating three. In the second cohort, a negative effect was seen with the highest pesticide level, although this effect was not statistically significant, and they basically saw a null effect in the third cohort. And just to just to point out, they interpreted the protective effect because it was not statistically mm, significant mm -hmm. as null, which they I, did. Yeah. I take a little bit of an issue with. Although I mean, their competence interval is very wide, so fair. But I we'll come back to it. Yeah. So no, that's a good point. And the pooled estimate that they looked at was about one point four across all the cohorts, and they didn't find any specific food items that they thought were driving the relationships that maybe had changed, their pesticide residue level had changed during the study period, or certain foods that people who, who had glioma were more likely to eat. They didn't find any of that. And so their conclusion, and we know that Matt loves it when the mm -hmm. study authors, you know, kind of dictate their own conclusion, but what their conclusion here was that in the 1976 cohort, their original nurses' health cohort, um, which was all nurses and the study was predominantly white, there was an effect between exposure to dietary pesticide residue and risk of glioma, but they did not observe this effect in the other cohorts, which had slightly more diversity as well across kind of demographic groups and also across healthcare professions. Yeah. So this isn't, I thought this one was an interesting puzzle because, you know, if, if 
if this pesticide uh, does have an effect, there's a, you know it's hard for me to understand why that effect would right. effectively disappear in a more diverse cohort. But I, I think there are some possible explanations that we can we can talk about. To back up, I, I always start off by you know writing down what's my what's my prior on this, and I thought, well, I don't really know this topic all that well. But my my prior is, yeah, I, I suspect there is probably an effect. I don't know how large it is, but I suspect there is an effect. And then I started to interrogate that a little bit and think, well, why is it that I think that? Because, again, I'm this is not an area that I study. This is before I read the introduction when it's clear that there is a, a sound basis for this. But I think the reason is I think I have a an a priori belief that if we're talking about something like pesticides – Okay. There is a reasonable chance, not a, not a not a high chance, but a reasonable chance, you know, a non-zero chance, I should say, maybe not reasonable, but a non-zero chance that it is associated with pretty pretty much any cancer. Right. Not right. because you know there I have a biologic mechanism in mind, but it's just sort of that's mm-hmm. that is sort of where I, I I start from, and I don't I don't know that that's that's really justified, but I, I just I think that we you know as humans are conditioned to believe that 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 things that we don't you know pesticides are probably you know, potential have the potential to be harmful. Many of them are carcinogenic, sure. and so so I think your your understanding is not out of out of thin air. You know, it's it's not out of thin air. It does come from. I mean, many of these chemicals are demonstrated in repeated studies of animals yep. to be carcinogenic. Carcinogenic, yes, the, but the, the question is in in right. in in the kind of doses that would right. be consumed, right? So, I, I in yeah. in in farm workers, it seems mm-hmm. to me highly plausible. Right. In when you get into pesticide residue, I think, you know, my 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 level of skepticism goes up. Not that it could be having an effect, but that the effect would be much smaller if there is an effect. Right. And I think the question becomes, if there was a smaller effect of residue, is this the population in which you might see the the effect? So is this are are adults largely adult women kind of the pop if 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 you were making a claim that this a dietary pesticide exposure, causes health impact. Yep. Would this be the highest risk population? And the answer is probably no. Who, who would be? Children, maybe. But the challenge is you couldn't really look at a can- – it would be very difficult to look at a cancer outcome in children. So the longitudinal nature and the, the almost 3 million person years, for example, in the nurse's health is the perfect situation to look longitudinally at a cancer outcome and especially an outcome that is just so rare um, where you have only 275 cases among 200,000 women. But there's challenges because you could say maybe these are not the people. If there is a biological effect, maybe this these are not the people where you are see they are these are not the most vulnerable yeah. people. And actually, the period of importance might have been during childhood. If you have a cancer that might have a 30 year latency period, it you know even even if you know nurses' health is looking over over 10 20 years. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there, so so part of what I was going to get to when we talked about you know why might you see differences in these different populations, even if the biologic mechanism is essentially the same. Part of it may be that these cohorts on average were different ages. Yep. And the younger, the younger, I think it was the one that was the youngest on average where you saw the smallest effect. I think it's, I think it's worth pointing out. You, know, you said, you know, millions of person years and, and mm-hmm. like, this is something you could do in the nurse's health study. And isn't this great? And it, it is, but it's also worth remembering that your precision is driven not by the number of person years, but by the number of events. Right, right. It's and true. so you've got millions of person years, but only 200 or right. what is it, about 300? 275. 275 right. events, right. right? So this is an incredibly rare cancer. So 
so I just think it's worth having that in context that even if we're talking about an effect, we are talking about right. relative to the size of people who consume fruit and vegetables, a small effect. Right. And I think the authors address that. They, they, they talk or, about that kind or sorry, of maybe thing. Not a, yeah. Maybe not a small effect, but a, right. a small total relative to the baseline, which is incredibly low. Right. And I think the authors address that. Yeah, no, I understand. And I think the authors address that in a nice way, kind of talking through, as they talk through kind of the limitations of what they could really do. And the challenge here is that I don't know what a better design would be to look at glioma, right? Like this, this would be case kind control of, study right? maybe, I mean, but maybe, you'd still end right. up with the same number of cases. Probably you wouldn't end up with, you'd end up with more, but probably not many more. Probably. And here you have longitudinal data on, on these dietary factors, which you maybe would not have in right. the same way with the same quality recall exactly. and a case control design. So this, it has a lot of strengths, but it's challenging. And it's, I agree that there is not much biological plausibility to think if there is a relationship between these pesticides and glioma, that it would only manifest in, in women participating in the first cohort and not in people participating in the other two cohorts. Cause you'd obviously expect that if there's you know, that, that if there's a biological effect that it would cut across people, regardless of when you joined this study. So that was interesting, too. I think, you know, pesticides also consist of many classes of chemicals. They're not, it's not like one unilateral chemical. And the authors here, what was kind of cool is that they were looking at a couple of different types of, of pesticides that are kind of more established to be carcinogenic. But the pesticide composition on a piece of fruit has changed a lot mm -hmm. over their study period. And people's dietary patterns, you know, we were just talking last time about kind of fruit and veggie consumption, and people's dietary habits have changed also kind of yeah. over the course of this, over the course of this study. And so I like the way that they tried to use as best as possible kind of real-time estimates. But again, there's a lot of misclassification a lot. in terms of what actually was on that piece of fruit that someone ate that strawberry in 1985. Exactly. Uh, so so I, I, I should back up and say, I, I generally, I think the authors did a really good job with what they had. I just think mm -hmm. there are limitations yeah. to what they had. And as you say, I think I think there's a lot of opportunity for misclassification here. So it, it isn't just the misclassification. So there's misclassification in what you consumed, right? We know that the mm -hmm. fruit frequency questionnaire has been validated, but I still think there's a lot of variation in what people eat, how things change over time, and you know how correctly people report or know what they ate. So, so you have that. Then you have the on top of it. Now we're going to apply a, a essentially an average value of pesticide consumption onto the already mismeasured, you know, mismeasured in quotes because it's you know maybe on average is fine, but already mismeasured food frequency. And you have, you have a lot of potential variation. Now, I can't think of any reason why that would do anything but bias towards no effect. Yeah. So maybe that's some of the explanation here is there is an effect and you're, you're missing it because it's not a huge effect and you've got so much random noise in the measurement that it's biasing towards the null. But then I wonder what explains the protective effect that right. they found in one cohort. So in two cohorts, right? I think was it two? I thought it was just oh, one. Oh no, sorry, it was just one. It was just one. And so I didn't talk about this in the yeah. introduction, but they you know, they kind of claimed a null effect, but on the kind of hazard ratio estimate, it was you know, the estimate was was 0.52. Yeah. So think about this. So so if you flip that, mm -hmm. it's essentially a doubling right. in the reduction in mm -hmm. risk. Mm -hmm. What I you know, so 
part of me says, well, they interpret that as null because their confidence interval is really wide, point from 0.19 to 1.45. I, I, that is very wide. On the other hand, the majority of the consistency of the data is with protective effects. Right. So if you thought this was a really good study, you would interpret that to say, well, you know, could be... Right. Could be null, could be harm, could be benefit. But, you know, on average, if I had to bet, I'd bet on there being a protective effect. Mm -hmm. But then what explains that? Why Why would we expect a protective right. effect? And that's where I think it also gets interesting because it, it also strikes me as plausible. And they say this right in the beginning that there there is some plausible rationale for a protective right. effect mm -hmm. because this is not a single intervention. I mean, intervention is the right word term, but you know what I mean. In the sense of you can't consume the pesticide without the fruit right. and or the vegetable. And therefore, there may be protective effects of the fruit and vegetable that are competing with the harmful effects of the, the pesticide. And those may, on balance in some groups, depending on age, depending on whatever it is, time mm. period of exposure, the amount, one may outweigh the other. And so it's just a really interesting puzzle to try to tease out. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of, in, in my view, one of the most interesting things about environmental health is the idea that no one is exposed to one exposure in exclusion. And life is a bucket of exposures that mm. interact with each other in complex ways. And sometimes we try to model elements of those interactions. Sometimes we look at the exposure unilaterally as if it stands alone and it doesn't matter what vehicle the pesticides are, if the pesticide is on a really nutritious item. That obviously could play into the effect of that of that compound on health. And so I think, well, this, this sort of, of study, to kind of take it to a different level, it would be really interesting to look at some of those like mixtures, statistical analyses, to try to look at kind of more comprehensively, what are the mixtures of chemicals? How could they be quantified? And then in a bigger kind of cumulative you know, focus, kind of what are the kind of consequences of these mixtures in light of the health benefits of eating fruit and veggies, which are substantial. Yeah. And I suppose the, the one other thing that I would say here is, so obviously causal inference from observational data is hard. And so because of that, we focus very almost exclusively on a single exposure outcome pair or occasionally two exposure outcome pairs. But if you actually want to think about policy, if you want to think about what we would do about things, we need to look at the bigger picture because mm -hmm. fruit and vegetable consumption is really important for cardiovascular health, for, you know, for all kinds of things. And so we wouldn't want to say, well, just because we find that there is an increase in risk of, of some cancers in relation to fruit and vegetable consumption, but overall, you're actually going to live a longer, healthier life if you consume more fruit and vegetables. And what we need to do is not encourage people to consume less fruit and vegetable. We need to think about how do we minimize the, the pesticide ingestion that goes along with it. We sometimes lose the, the bigger picture. Now, I, I don't think we'd lose the bigger picture in this case. I'm just saying, I think in general, because causal inference is so hard, it forces us into looking at a very isolated incident. As we said, the, the, the risk of this cancer is incredibly low overall. And therefore, you know, we don't want to draw conclusions based only on just thinking about its impact on one outcome. Right. I think that's totally true. And I think also one of the things I was reflecting on with this study is just glioma as a disease, which I know largely from the TV show Lennox Hill. I don't know if you've ever seen Never this. Never seen one. it. It's a good one, a little plug for it. But one of the doctors in the show is a specialist in glioma. 
And and so in in talking through kind of his work, you know, this is kind of like a reality medical show, you know, has talked about how over like 30, 40 years of research into treatment and, you know, kind of medications for glioma, they've extended life by only six months. Mm -hmm. And so it's a particularly difficult to manage, devastating diagnosis, and the causes are largely unknown. And so I could understand why the authors took this deep dive into glioma because yep. they have tons of data sure. for nurses' health and kind of, you know, why glioma and pesticides, kind of this combination. And so I think part of what drove that was this, like, specifically terrible nature of this disease. Yep. Yeah. So just to back up here, I assumed when you named that show that this was a uh, drama, but now you're telling – I think you're telling me this is a reality show? It's a – Yes, yeah, it's like I, it, I can't watch those. No, it's like I, I, some of it is probably kind of scripted, but it's largely unscripted. It, yeah, it, yeah. They they sell a narrative and all these things <laughs> right, for, right, sure. Oh, for sure. So there's for there sure. is it, right. it's but never this, just reality. But this but is the heroic doctor being, who's yeah, treating gliomas. Right? I can't. My 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 <laughs> wife loves those. I can't watch them. And the worst of all is Doctor Pimple Popper. Do you know this one? No, that sounds gross. It's disgusting. It's, 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 I can't watch it. Nick, have you, have you ever watched this? You know what I'm talking about? It's gross. Oh, I have not seen this. Okay. No, no, I'm disturbed just hearing about it. Lipoma is the word that comes out of that show. One last point I want to ask you about is what do you think about use of quintiles? I've used quintiles in my own research. I mean, I think. So for for the the audience or anyone who doesn't know, quintiles or quantiles or whatever it is, is when you break the data up into different exposure levels, not based on any specific value of, you know, any amount of pesticide that you consumed, but we just divide the data up into equal groups. So, you know, if, if the median value, the mid, you know, median value is a hundred, then we could cut the data in half at above and below 100, or if there are other stratification values that put people into equal groups, we do that. My concern with quintiles is obviously right. is always that they don't, or any of those approaches, is that they don't correspond to anything biologic. There's no reason to think that the highest versus the lowest corresponds right. to any necessary meaningful difference mm-hmm. um, or above some threshold that we think is important. Right. And so I, you know, it, it could be that the the differences in the different cohorts relates to the fact that the the distributions of the consumption are are very different and we're not looking at the exact same the exact same thing. It could be. I mean, I think the the quintiles or quartiles, I mean, they're they're useful when we don't know what the threshold of harm is, where we, you know, and this is one of those examples where it's not as if, they, you know, there's an understanding that over this level, this is really what puts you at risk or over, you know, over a certain level, this becomes carcinogenic. And so in the absence of having that information, the quintiles kind of allow you to not blur, but kind of kind of blur. Like in, instead of, the, you know, the alternative would be to kind of use this data. If you can't use it in a, in a dichotomous way, it would be to use it continuously. And in that continuous use of the data, it assumes that there might be a small increment change mm-hmm. that you're hypothesizing mm-hmm. there is not. That you're, you're kind of making the hypothesis that that increment of change is not something you'd see continuously, but it is something you'd see over some, some threshold, but you don't quite know what that threshold is. So you're just going to say it's the top however you define that based on how many people are in your study. And so there, there can be justification for, for, using, for using that approach. And I think I've used it in environmental health data, and I think it's fairly it's, – it's, it's not uncommon yep. to do it, but I, it, it does have challenges, yep. definitely. But yep. it kind of leads into these exposures or even outcomes where there's just less certainty about what it, about what it really means yep. biologically. Yep. 
All right, let's move on to our second segment, which is the deep dive where we're going to talk about the rise of the preprint. So this was a, an article in Nature Medicine called The Rise of the Preprint, How Rapid Data Sharing During COVID-19 Has Changed Science Forever by Claire Watson. And, I, you know, it's an article that I think makes some, some fairly unsurprising to those of us who have gone mm. through what's gone on during the COVID pandemic, some unsurprising observations about, you know, just the fact that preprints, these scientific articles that get published on a server prior to peer review, some of which never go through peer review, mm -hmm. but some of which do end up, many of which do end up going on getting published, but have had during the COVID pandemic an outsized impact, I think, mm -hmm. on news coverage, media, and I think to a certain extent, even policy, because it's Everybody can access this and it makes a splash, but it hasn't actually gone through the peer review process. Now, we on this program have talked many times about our qualms about peer review, but I'd still rather have peer review than, than nothing before we start to at least screen things for what we're are in the realm of what we you know, take seriously for rigorous science. Again, not to say that things that are on preprint servers are all bad. They aren't. Many of them pass the peer review process, but it's it's just being on a preprint server alone doesn't give it any kind of stamp of approval, even if that's a very, very weak stamp as we've talked about many times. So this is this is happening. There is pretty much nothing we can do about it. This preprints existed before the pandemic. They were largely used in the like the physical sciences for a long time. They were not used in epidemiology and public health until I would say, you know, five, say, six years yeah. ago mm -hmm. when they started to come into favor and then the pandemic hits and then they explode. So they say a staggering 19,389 articles about COVID were shared in the first four months of the pandemic, a third of which were preprints, unvetted and unfiltered for all to see. But it's also exposed the inner workings of the scientific process to a new audience and laid bare the best and worst of pandemic research. I agree with that. So they're, they note there have been some huge success stories. So there are certain drugs that have been put out on these preprint servers that have turned out to be really useful. Others studies on things like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which have been incredibly harmful. And the problem is you've got a system that was designed for scientists to be able to communicate and access information faster and in real time and get a more broad set of critiques that can also be used by bad faith actors. I hate the term bad faith, but I'm just going to use it because they, I'm quoting them here, who jump on complex science or shoddy preprints to advance their narratives. And I, I do agree with that. So the question is, where ultimately do you come down on preprints? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like on balance, I think preprints are a good thing. However, they do have this in a very negative underbelly of you know, and it's it, it, sometimes I would imagine it's people who have a motivation to spread a particular message and they view this as a vehicle to sharing that message through improperly conducted science or, you know, other, you know, other kind of sharing other problematic or falsified data. And this is viewed as a mechanism to do that. I think there's also kind of legitimately sometimes the value of peer review does come in and there can be someone where the you know there's a mistake or there's a misinterpretation and maybe hopefully that might be picked up during peer review but i think you know the, the author here talks through 
kind of some of the successes of preprint during the first year of the pandemic and then some of the mega failures. And I would like to believe that the successes had public health benefit as it related to kind of very quickly sharing the genome of the virus and, you know, kind of when there were clinical you know, clinical aspects that improved patient care. I remember, you know, the kind of turning the patients from back to front or, or you know, certain medications that those could be shared very rapidly and could deal with, you know, the challenge that we had this fast moving public health crisis and science in its best form is slow and doesn't adapt very well to, to, to needing to move fast. And so sharing of the information, you know, I think, on balance probably is for is is for the better but it does have this kind of dark underbelly of you know people being able to use this modality to share things that are either blatantly untrue or things that are incorrect even if the motivation is not to share incorrect information it's troubling you, but yeah yeah so let me ask you this do you think that the progress in the pandemic would have been slowed down if we didn't have preprints Probably. I think I think the preprints, the, the best case scenario for preprint is that they allowed scientists and doctors and people who were making decisions to be able to have rapid access to data. And sometimes that was bad quality data, <laughs> but oftentimes it was good quality data. And it allowed people to save lives by seeing that data sooner rather than later. And so on balance, yes, I think it, I, I think it was, I would say, I think it was helpful. And I think there are some clear you know, some clear ways where preprint is beneficial. I think the author made the point that very few papers change between preprint and publication, which goes back to your earlier point that's not always clear that peer review kind of really gives this stamp of quality that we might hope that it does. But there is some value in, in speed. Okay, so you believe that on balance we were that that if we hadn't had the the preprint servers that that we yeah. would have been doing worse during the pandemic. I think lives were saved by preprint. But I lives were, might have also been lost so by preprint too. So this is the problem. Right, you have right. to, we yeah. would have to weigh the, the, right. the positives and negatives because I, I, I do believe that. I believe that there are lives that were were lost because of bad data put on preprint right. servers that fed into narratives around vaccination or hydrochloric. You know, against vaccination or in favor yeah. of drugs that, that you know, either don't work at all or if they work have small benefits right. and you wouldn't want to forego vaccination because mm -hmm. of them you know you'd have to weigh that and i you know i don't know how to do that or if, if anyone right. is trying to do that but i think there is you know a, a, a an evaluation that needs to be done to really try to 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 figure that out because i think it does matter right I, th th this so okay so you believe you said you know this allows doctors and and scientists to access data that they wouldn't be able to otherwise access until they'd gone through the peer review process and that slows us down so then why not have preprint servers that are you know are access limited to those communities I mean what what about that argument right I mean I think the challenge here is that preprints almost become an opportunity to crowdsource to crowdsource scientific findings among people who who maybe don't understand how the study was conducted or don't understand the data. And it runs into that problem like we've talked about before on this podcast, the idea of, you know, how do researchers themselves draw their own conclusions on the basis of their work? And should they? Can they? And what if other people draw different conclusions? Or what if the quote unquote true conclusion from their research is not the way the researcher concludes at the end of their paper? And so it does. It opens up all of those challenges in terms of I don't think there's 
you know, I'm not sure there's a mechanism to say like you have to have a university credential to be able to access a preprint, but it does open up the upper, it, it makes it more like crowdsourcing and kind of public reflection of information. And that has all of the challenges with, with any kind of publicly available data or publicly available science with, the, you know, with even the diminishment that it hasn't had other professional eyes on it. Yeah. And I, I want to be, make it clear, I'm not arguing for limiting mm-hmm. access to preprints. I think the, the I'm just trying to play out yeah. the, the yeah. options here. It does strike me that if you, the, the problem would become that if you limit access to preprints, that information is going to be shared outside of the right. community, right? People are going to, you know, if they have a, you know, people with nefarious uh, intentions will then take the information and then share it with others. And then it will, it will essentially do the same thing, but it will look worse because it will look like you were trying to hide mm-hmm. that information, you know, information right, right. that was, was detrimental. And so that would sort of feed into the conspiracy theories. So I, I'm not sure that, you know, limiting access necessarily would improve the situation. In fact, I could see a rationale for how it might, in fact, make things worse. Right. And I think the, you know, an alternative to preprint is, is kind of the rapid, the rapid review process, which I've seen a lot of the ID journals pick up, you know, in, especially during the pandemic, a number of them had them before, but kind of increasingly during the pandemic where it's like, you know, either the editor makes an executive decision about whether or not to accept the paper without sending it out to peer review, or it's peer reviewed minimally where they say, okay, you know, reviewer, two reviewers, you have a week, send it back. And then we want to make a publication decision. Yeah. I mean, I've had papers that have been part of those processes. And as the researcher, it's kind of unnerving because you're like, oh, this was just the editor who made the decision by himself. It has the stamp of peer review. But it kind of wasn't peer-reviewed. It was just the editor. It was like an editor acceptance. And the goal of that kind of diminishes the the need for for the preprint because the paper is actually out there faster, but it also doesn't doesn't allow for kind of the thoughtful peer review that we again in the optimal circumstance would hope for. Yeah. In the same way that we didn't we didn't really marshal all of our resources to mm-hmm. deal with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I think this the 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 partly because of the way that the science, you know, the the information scientific information gets disseminated is is decentralized we didn't we didn't have a mechanism for this but we didn't we didn't marshal all our resources to to deal with the amount the vast amount of, of science so so what you could have had was we could have had an emergency you know get together of all the journals to say we commit to a fast screening of all the covid related articles mm-hmm. and then once we've you know once we screen them and we'll employ a whole bunch of people to do that and then once we've screened them we will send them out for a one week peer review so the total time from submission to acceptance will be you know a two week period with then it then it being put online in its current form right we could have tried to do something like that right. i'm not even sure that would have worked though because the volume was so great. I'm not sure we could have ever met the demand to actually do something like that. And the professional, you know, capacity was so diminished. I mean, as people in the field who get asked to review papers, like we were home with our kids as well for the first six, eight months of the pandemic, simultaneously trying to work full time. And so the the human resources were limited. Yeah. And, and, and the second part of that is peer review. I mean, we're already inundated with right. peer review requests. Before, this was before the pandemic. Right. Now, all of the people who are best positioned to do the peer review have no time because they have thrown themselves into the science that 
to, to conduct the science 24-7 to be able to generate the good information. So they're not available. So then it gets pushed down to people who have less substantive experience to be able to right. do that. There, right? There was it, it was a recipe for a, a poor review process. And there's no easy way to separate out the stuff that is promising from the stuff that isn't promising. Well, and there's also, I mean, there's also the political agenda that plays into sure. this that we really saw with the pandemic and politicians or, you know, just public personalities kind of promoting, promoting some of these findings because they, they seem to work for my mom or seem to work for me. And, and that or it then, supported my desire to end lockdowns or right. institute lockdowns or end masking or institute masks, whatever it was. Right. And so and so that became very tricky, too, as that played into the meaning of the preprints and the speed of publication and how we communicated science during that period. It's, it's very difficult. OK, last question I want to mm -hmm. ask you. So uh, we've sort of gone through the pros and the cons of preprints. And we've talked about also our concerns about peer review. The question is, are we better off with a paper that is a preprint that gets picked up by the media that may never turn into anything good or a study that gets the stamp of approval of preprint, uh, sorry, of, of peer review that then gets in the media that is also a bad study, which I mean, which is which is worse? I mean, we know that peer review is letting through a lot of studies that are bad studies, you know, which one's worse? The one that's right. actually been, peer, you know, gotten the stamp of peer review or the one that didn't? This is a terrible question. Like, which one is worse? I, 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 I feel like, you know, we also are in this environment now where science is really distrusted and medical research and epidemiologic research. There's a lot of distrust and there's a lot of sense that we just mess up kind of everything we put our hands on when it relates to this, this data. And so, you know, to the extent that a peer-reviewed study later ends up being wrong, or there is some expose that shows that it was the data, you know, analysis was shoddy, or the peer reviewers did not pick up something that might have been kind of glaringly obvious if someone had actually looked at it in a sat down and had the time to really look through it and look at it closely. That's bad for the field too, when papers come out and they have to be retracted. And and that's that's bad also. And in some ways, like that's worse because that reflects publicly the failures of our system, although the retraction itself is is a positive thing. Yeah. I mean, that's, so that's that gets into retraction. Retraction is another tricky one because we've we've talked a lot about, you know, does Something that turns out to be wrong but was done in, in good faith, should mm -hmm. that be retracted? And generally speaking, my my opinion on that is is no, because you know, every study is one of a distribution of studies that get done and and you know it all comes together. We don't retract the ones that turned out to be wrong, as long as they were we believe they were done in, in good faith and done, you know, fairly well. It could be that it was, you know, there was some bias that we just couldn't remove, or it could be this was just by chance one of the bad ones. But during a, 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 a crisis like the COVID pandemic, I think there's more of an argument for retraction of studies that turn mm. out to be wrong if they are highly influential, because then I think we, we need to say, this is not correct information. Stop right. citing it. Stop using this. And you know that's a tricky one. But I'm going to use that point. I'm going to end this conversation and switch over to our last segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, because... My Amazing and Amusing comes from Retraction Watch, oh, so it okay. fits perfectly well with what we were just talking about. 
So this was an article I found interesting. It was published in January 20th, I think, of 2022 on Retraction Watch, and it was entitled Courage and Correction, How Editors Handle and Mishandle Errors in Their Journals. It was put out by a group of of people, researchers, who have spent some time identifying studies, particularly in their case, I think, randomized trials, that have mistakes in the way that they are analyzed. Mm -hmm. And they identify them. I don't have any reason to believe that like this is like their mission or anything. I just it could be that they just read a study and say there's a problem here and then they go and then they you know see another one and they go to that off, you know. Or it could be that this is a goal they set out. I I don't know the answer to that, but they find a particular problem that is common, which is cluster randomized trials being analyzed like they were individually randomized trials. So the idea here is a cluster randomized trial is when you randomize a group rather than an individual. You don't flip a coin and say you're going to get the drug or you're not. You flip a coin and say that school is going to get the intervention like the when we talked about the fruit and vegetable one. You know, the this school will get it. And the problem not the problem, but the 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 limitation of that approach is kids who are going to the same school, they're they're more like each other than kids who are going to different schools, and so their outcomes are more likely to be like each other, and therefore you get less information per person. And you have to adjust for that. You have to narrow, uh, sorry, widen your confidence intervals using statistical techniques so that you have less certainty in your results. And I I support that. I mean, so they identified a lot of cases where this is being done. They then contact the journals. And their experience, they, they talk initially about one in which they contacted the the journal and they said, here's a problem. Can we have the, we think there's a problem. Can we access the raw data? And the authors give them the raw data and they say, okay, this is actually better than most situations because most of the time people won't actually cough up the data. So then they reanalyze the data and they find it does actually make a difference. One thing I left out was sometimes reanalyzing the data using the correct methodology makes a big difference. Sometimes it makes a small difference. And so you could argue in some cases it doesn't matter, in some cases it does. So they find in this case it matters. The results go from statistically significant to not statistically significant. They then go back to the journal and say, here's a problem. And that's when they run into problems. So now the journals start to say, well, you know, communicate with the authors on this, work it out. Or they say, we're going to send it to a uh, the statistical reviewer who reviewed this and see what they think. Or it just sort of gets pushed aside. Or they say, you know, you can, you can, write a response, but it has to be only 800 words. And so you don't really have enough room to get your point across. And their point here is, you know, editors don't, aren't really incentivized to correct mistakes Mm -hmm. and they run into a lot of problems. I thought that was really interesting, but I also see another side to that, which is, I, I agree with them. I think they're correct. And I suspect in a lot of cases, it really is just a desire to have this go away. You don't want to be issuing a lot of corrections or potentially retractions. On the other hand, you know, this is based on saying we believe there is something wrong with these studies because they did the wrong statistical technique. Most cases, not exclusively, but in most cases, when you adjust for the clustering that happens within these clusters, the point estimates do not move at all. There are cases where it can, but generally speaking, they don't. What changes is the confidence intervals. And so you can go from a situation where you have statistical significance to you don't have statistical significance. But I'm not a statistical significance person, right? So to me, I care about the precision of the estimates. I care about how wide the confidence intervals are. But it matters to me whether those confidence intervals are increasing dramatically or are they increasing a little bit, but they're going over the bounds of 
statistical significance. You know, in some cases to me it matters, in some cases it doesn't. And it seems to me partly this is based on a, on a view of how we interpret data, what is right and what is wrong. So I can sort of see both sides of this. I applaud the authors for what they're doing. I do think they're correct that there are correct ways to analyze this data and we should be doing that and I support that. They also reference cases where there are just flat out mistakes and those are different. Those are absolutely should be corrected. But I just, you know, I think there are some gray areas. Right. It's a really interesting, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think also the kind of the, the way editors or outside reviewers approach a team where they think they've made a mistake. And, you know, we were talking about some like a well-intentioned mistake yep. that they're, they have this data set and they're doing this analysis and they didn't do something that maybe they would have done or they should have done, but they yeah. didn't know they, they should have, you know, kind of how is that approached in the field and yeah. say it's a student paper. And, you know, is is the goal to, like, take down someone on the basis of that they didn't properly adjust for cluster randomization? I don't, well, by the way, I, right? I, I impute no, no, no nefarious. No, 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 I think right. these people are doing wonderful right. work. I'm, I'm think, supportive of them. Yeah. I'm just saying there are, I think there are areas where you could disagree. No, and I think in the field, too, I think we could have a greater openness to other people reanalyzing our data. Yeah, And the I idea agree. that they would have an improvement over the way we did it and that that wouldn't be presented nece necessarily as an attack on yep. your integrity. Yep. That, you know, it's the idea that we did this study and you maybe should have done something a little bit different and you didn't yep. know it. And so and so we're going to kind of reanalyze your data, work together, yep. and maybe your results don't really differ. Or like you're saying, the take-home picture doesn't, doesn't change. Yeah. Um, yep. And most likely it's not going to. Agreed. Um, I, and I think that's hard because everyone gets defensive about mm -hmm. their own work, sure. especially after it's published, especially after it's on your CV. Yeah. That it, it can it can be hard personally, I think, to take the idea that maybe we didn't do something exactly right. Totally it's agree. Alert, you know, kind of well, the iterative nature of the field and learning. Yep. Uh, what do you got? Ah, uh, so I have I have something again, very very different, and this is an obituary, so not. Not amusing, but in, in an amazing career that I wanted to just mm. note because it has affected me. So a management researcher died in the last few weeks. Her name is uh, Seagal Barsad. She was a researcher at the Wharton School, mm. um, the business school at the University of Pennsylvania. And over the years, I have been quite affected by her, her research. And, and it's not something that was always at the top of my mind, but I saw her obituary and I said, oh, you know, it's a shame. She was in her mid-50s too when she died. Mm, sorry um, to hear that. And her research was about the importance of expressing emotion at work. And for me personally, I feel like when I started my career as a woman, the idea was that, you know, you don't talk about your personal life at work. It's kind of like, you don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno and we don't talk about our personal life at work. And you, you walk into your office, you don't talk about your kids, you don't talk, you pretend you're not pregnant until it's visibly impossible to do so. You don't talk about marriage, you don't talk about your relationships, you don't talk about divorce, you don't, you don't, you, don't, you kind of, you really? bring as, and I think this was reinforced to me by my women mentors, that you will do better professionally if you just come in as your own self and you leave as your own self and your home business stays at home. And what was so interesting to me, and so I was reading, and I was reading this research as it was coming out over the last, you know, 10 years or so, was that her work was highlighting the fact that organizations that did not ask people to do that and in fact kind of provided an emotional support network among colleagues, that the companies did better. 
And this was kind of the take home that they were more successful. The work units were more successful in addition to people feeling more kind of better about their work lives and experiencing less distress about this kind of discrepancy about their work self and their home self. Yeah. You know, the idea that it was good for the business bottom line for companies to have a culture that didn't require that separation. And I think this was something that for women kind of of my generation was particularly resonant because the my, my mentors, older women, very much could not discuss their personal life at work. Wow. And and that was something that was expressed to their, I know, to me personally, and I think to other kind of women in epi and public health of that generation that you really couldn't talk about these things. You know, you maybe went away for a couple of months and you had a baby, but then you were back <laughs> and everything was just the same as it was before. And I think things have shifted. Like I, you know, but I, I feel like my career, even in these, you know, these early kind of decades of my career has crossed over that threshold. And I think her research was really instrumental in bringing organizations around to seeing that there was an economic bottom line to kind of not having that distinction. So I was sorry to see that she passed away. I'm sorry to hear that too. That's really interesting to me because I, I, my mentors have been the exact opposite. Yes, you're a man. Uh, And and so, but hang on. So you're hundred (laughs) percent right about that. And, and I think that impacts the way I see it. But when I say that, like my, I, what I mean is department chairs and it was for the whole department. So it wasn't just advice to me. It mm-hmm. was advice to the whole department. In fact, the, the terms bring your whole self to work were, were said mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean, though, that, that, that doing that doesn't get, right. ex, you know, get experienced in different ways based on whether you're male or female. Or, and so I, I, can, I, can, I can see that. It, just, it, was not a, it wasn't a culture I was, I want to say raised in, but you know what I mean, academically. Right. But I don't, obviously, I don't know what the, what the, the consequences of that policy or, or that, that culture were, whether they actually worked for everyone or if they just worked for some people. Well, I think the idea, at least in my kind of early understanding of what it would mean to bring your whole self to work, is that it benefited men mm, because sure. it, made, it made you seem kind of more agreeable and more willing to collaborate and, and kind of more well-rounded in a way that benefited you professionally because people wanted to work with you. But for women, it had the opposite effect because it made people think you weren't committed to your work or you didn't really have the time or, oh, she's just going to – she's not going to be a good collaborator on this research project because, look, she has a baby and she's not – she's just not going to be around even if, you know, she's brilliant. So I think there was that gendered effect. And I think it's – it has been changing yep. in academia during yep. the pandemic. And I think, and that's in part why I was reflecting on this obituary right now is that I think there has been this motivation now, even if you don't want to, your work is at home, yeah. your home comes yeah. with you to, to work. And there has been this larger understanding of kind of the whole self at work. And I'll be interested to kind of watch to see if that if that maintains Me too. or if we kind Me of too. all go back into our bubbles of kind of no home is at home and work is at work. So totally agree. And, you know, there's a there's like an Apple TV series coming out mm. about this sort of like these folks who have their I don't know how it works. If they mm-hmm. have like something surgically done to their <laughs> brains where when they go to work, they completely forget everything about their home life. And when they go home, they completely separate from their work life and they have no memory of uh-huh. what happens in between, uh-huh. which I think is an interesting, yeah. interesting parallel. 
All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox, or Don at, at DTheo1, or Chris at ID.Gill, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>